I'm going to do my, my best to keep my voice. Got cough drop in, got tea here. We'll get through it. Uh, as, as Katie mentioned, this is our second week of Lent, this uh, period of time, 46 days technically, leading up to Easter. It's a time of uh, preparation and reflection leading up to uh, that very important day in, in the Christian calendar. And so we started that last week, but in addition to that, we started a new series, which we're calling Kingdom Come last week. And uh, we're focusing on Jesus's favorite topic, which was the kingdom of God. If you're paying attention at all to the kind of stuff that's happening in, in our country now, uh, you, you might be hearing things about like Christian nationalism and all of the things that people who call themselves Christians are trying to implement, trying to use like school boards and local politics and state politics and even, um, even like the levers of power in Washington, D.C. to implement a, a Christian agenda. And when that type of stuff is happening, it's really easy and, you know, in, in some ways appropriate. It, it makes sense for us to say, you know what, as, as a church, as, as individual followers of Jesus, we need to completely disengage from politics because of all of that, that mess. And yet what, what my argument was last week was that, um, that that's selling short what, what we, uh, how we define politics and how we define what it means to be a follower of Jesus too. Uh, because Jesus talked about politics all the time, not about partisanship, but about politics, like using power and influence and, uh, and trying to think through how our decisions impact everyday lives and the people and the world around us. He was very serious about this type of stuff, talked about it all the time, and he framed it within the context of the kingdom of God. And the expectation was that people were actually going to do the things that, that he dreamed of for the world, that in this kingdom of God, people were going to live as citizens of the kingdom of God and value the types of things that, that he and uh, God's dream for the world would, would require. And so each of these weeks during, uh, during Lent, we are going to be looking at a different kingdom policy, as if these are like the values that Jesus was, uh, was thinking about uh, where... Um, in this, in this reality where, where God is in charge and where God's dream comes true, what are the things that are highly valued and what would it mean for us as individual followers of Jesus and the church to take those things seriously and to say what would it look like for our lives and our world to be governed by those types of values. Now, what we're going to find is that often those policies, just like any policy that we might have in our politics today, some people are, are going to be really excited about them, and there's going to be other people who are not excited about them at all. This was the case with Jesus, too. He was a very polarizing type of figure, and so he went around uh, teaching and preaching and healing people, and there were groups of people who were really excited about what he had to say and what his dream for the world was. These were uh, mostly like forgotten people, marginalized, the poor they were following him everywhere, excited about this vision that he had for how the world could be. There were plenty of people on the other side, however, who were not excited about it. Um, religious leaders and uh, other, other people from the, the Roman Empire who wanted to shut all that down. And so there's this story that happens where uh, those people who are not so excited about what Jesus is saying and this, this vision for the kingdom of God um, they're following him around as well, and there's rumblings, pretty clear and um, easily heard rumblings, that Jesus 
eats with those sinners. Well, they're not making it a huge secret that they're not happy with him. So Jesus hears this, and he's upset with them because of the implications of what it says about who God is and what God's dream for the world ought to be and who ought to be included in that. And so as he often does, in order to kind of correct that, that view of things and to show people this is what life in this new political reality known as the kingdom ought to be like, he tells three different stories. And all three of these stories are about lost things. So first off, there's a story of a lost coin, okay? Uh, then there is a story of, oh my goodness, what's the other lost thing? Thank you, the lost sheep. We have a, we have a song coming about the, the lost sheep. I'm going to focus on the third thing primarily this morning, but there's a, there's a lost coin. Someone has 10 coins. They lose the lost, they, they lose one coin. Of course, they're going to go for that, that one lost coin. That, that lost coin doesn't lose its value because it is not there any longer. So that person is going to sweep the entire house trying to find that coin. Same thing with the sheep. A shepherd has 100 sheep, loses one sheep. That sheep does not lose its value because it's suddenly gone. So that shepherd is going to do everything he can to find that sheep. And then finally, he lands it, uh, putting a little bit more flesh and blood into this, uh, into this understanding with the story of a lost son. You might know the story as uh, the, uh, the prodigal son, that's often what the, the name of the story is given. But this is the story that he tells about a lost son. And I want you to think through again as he's telling this story. This is, this is like an image of what he envisions the kingdom of God, this new political reality might look like. So this is the story from uh, one of his biographies by uh, a man named Luke. This is in Luke 15. Then Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that will belong to me. So he divided his assets between them. After a few days, the younger son gathered together all he had and left on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth with a wild lifestyle. Then, after he had spent everything, a severe famine took place in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and worked for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to eat the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have food enough to spare, but here I am dying from hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way from home, his father saw him and his heart went out to him. He ran and hugged his son and kissed him. Then his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, hurry, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So again, this is a parable, which is a, 
a story that includes like uh, everyday type of elements that people would be familiar with, but it is meant to tell a deeper spiritual truth. So Jesus tells this story about a man who had two sons, and the younger son comes to the father and says, I'd like my inheritance. This might not sound like a big thing, but usually inheritance don't come to you until the people who are giving you the inheritance are dead. So basically, the younger son is saying, Dad, I kind of feel like my life would be better if you were dead. Can I get the stuff that, that I'm supposed to get when you're dead so I can go and live my life? Uh, probably not a great feeling when your son comes and, and tells you this, right? But the father goes along with it. The father does what he needs to do in order to pass that inheritance down uh, to his son. And his son heads out for a land, foreign land, giving him the middle finger on the way. And no sooner does he get there, almost like immediately, he squanders it all. All of that, that stuff that he, he, uh, that he got from his father for his inheritance, it's gone in an is- instant. And then a famine hits. And then he finds himself just being able to survive working for a farmer and laying in the mud among pigs, wishing that he could eat the food that the pigs are eating. This is his situation. It's almost as if he finds himself in this situation and says, I'm in hell. This is hell. What am I doing? My, my father's workers, they had it better than this. Maybe I should just go back home and be one of his workers. So this is what he does. He gets up and he starts making his way back towards home. It's kind of a long journey, and so he's got a lot of time to think. And so what he decides to do is over this course of time, while he's walking back home, he starts making up this script that he's going to tell his father, this is how I'm going to explain why he should welcome me back and just allow me to be one of his, his servants. He's rehearsing it over and over and over again. But there's a surprise that happens because his father sees him first. If you're just reading the story really quickly, it'd be easy to think like the father's going about his normal everyday things and he's washing dishes and he looks out the, the kitchen window and there's his son coming down the driveway and then he goes to him. That's not what the story says. The story says that while he was a long way off, which means since the moment that son has left, the father has been waiting, scouring the horizon for the opportunity to welcome him back. And the moment he comes over that horizon, the father does not wait. The father runs to him and wraps him up and kisses him. And the son, as he's been practicing, he starts going into the speech that he has, uh, trying to validate why his father should welcome him back. And the father cuts him off because it does not matter. The father does not ask for the son to, to be forgiven. He does not offer forgiveness because the forgiveness is not needed. The, the love that the father has for his son has always been there. He can't do anything to earn it. He can't do anything to get rid of it. That's like a powerful, powerful thing, right? I think it's one of the most beautiful stories that we have in our entire Bible. And it's easy to cut it off there. That's often where this story of the prodigal son gets cut off. However, 
The story that Jesus tells starts with this little detail. There were two sons. So the second son, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the slaves and asked what was happening. The slave replied, your brother has returned. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he got his son back safe and sound. But the older son became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and appealed to him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have worked like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends? But when this son of yours came back who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you're always with me and everything that belongs to me is yours. It was appropriate to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So there is this second son. He's done everything right. He's never left his dad's side. He's never wished that he was dead. Um, he didn't ask for his inheritance, even though as the older son, he, he was actually entitled to more, if not all of the inheritance. He could have done that. He never left. He continues to work for his father. He didn't go and squander everything. He didn't um, muddy the, the family's good name. And so when he sees his younger brother show up and get all celebrated, he's mad. And he goes to his dad and tells him, I did everything right. I did everything right. Why have you not done this for me? This is not fair. And the father responds, you're right. It's not fair. But guess what? Life is not fair. This story is not about fairness. It's about goodness. The story that Jesus is Jesus is telling is not, uh, it's not about what is fair, but is what is good and right. And it is about the expansive love of God that is for everybody. And so the, the, the message that's being passed down through this parable, this normal everyday story with deeper spiritual meanings, is intended for those people who have been following him around who are really excited about this kingdom that he's talking about. And it's for those people who are really not excited about uh, this kingdom that he's talking about. And it's the same message to both of them being heard differently. My dream for this world is where everyone can be welcomed and celebrated and encouraged just as they are. Older brother, you are loved and welcomed and celebrated and encouraged just as you are. And so is your brother. My love for one does not take away my love for the other. This is not a zero-sum game when we're talking about grace. This might seem like a really hippy-dippy type of thing, like, love everybody, God loves everybody, woohoo! Um, but it has, like, really practical implications. If we are people who say, as we're trying to say through this series, we want to take the words of Jesus seriously, and these, these 
kingdom policies are meant to be lived out. They are meant to govern the way that we move in the world. Uh, that has like really direct implications. What does it look like and what does it mean if we're serious about the dream for a world where everyone is welcomed and celebrated and encouraged just as they are? The way I'd like us to think about this is in terms of, um, there's a comedian named Pete Holmes. Anybody hear of Pete Holmes? If you haven't heard of him, you should look him up. He's fantastic. He's incredibly funny and deadly serious at the same time. He's a super deep thinker. Uh, I had to go with this picture to go alongside the quote that I love even more. So Pete Holmes says, there's nothing you can do to increase or decrease the infinite love of God but there are things you can do to increase or decrease your awareness of that love. The younger son who thought he, after doing all of these not great things, had to legitimize why his, his father should welcome him back, had a decreased understanding of his father's love. The older son who thought that he deserved it more than the younger son had a decreased understanding of his father's love. Those marginalized and poor that were flocking to Jesus, they had a decreased understanding of the love of God for them. Those religious leaders who were not happy with what Jesus was talking about had a decreased love of God, or understanding of the love of God. And so, as those who uh, take the words of Jesus seriously, as those who, who try to implement these policies, it is our objective to understand for ourselves the breadth of the infinite love of God and also to increase that understanding of the infinite love of God everywhere we go as well. That has direct implications, direct things that it means for us in the world in which we live in. It means that our, our families and our homes are going to look a little bit different, right? Uh, it, it means that we're going to try to figure out what our, our very unique kids need, even and especially when we don't understand their needs. It means that as a teenager is coming up and, and trying to sort through their, um, their, their sexual and gender identity, we love them where they're at and help them try to navigate that because of the infinite love that God has for them that is similar to our infinite love for them. It means that we have a certain view on our very loud, obnoxious, liberal aunt. We also have a certain view on our, uh, on our red hat-wearing father, who we don't necessarily agree with. Yes, God's infinite love is for everyone, all of them in our family. That doesn't make it easy, but it means that we have to grasp that for ourselves and for them so that they can grasp it. So it has impacts on our home. It has impacts on our direct communities as well. When we recognize that, that people are going without in our communities, God has an infinite love for them that we ought to figure out through Friends in Need uh, Food Shelf or through helping out in our schools, how we can help people in our community understand the infinite love of God. And it has implications for our world as well, Right? It means that we might have boundaries that we put around ourselves and even around our country, but the infinite love of God extends to people on the United States border and the Mexican border. 
Can I get an amen? That doesn't make it easy. That doesn't solve all of our problems, but it then says, all right, if this is true, if we believe in the infinite love of God that is for everyone, how might that govern the way that we live and move in our world? The infinite love of God extends to those children in Ukraine and in Gaza who are being bombed and are having tanks roll down their streets. And the infinite love of God extends to the people who are dropping those bombs and driving those tanks. And I hate to say it. It's hard for me to say, but it's absolutely true. The infinite love of God extends to all of them. And so it is our job, if we're taking this stuff seriously, if we say this is God's dream for the world to be those who understand the infinite God that has for me and for you and to extend that infinite love of God to everyone else as well because it can change us and it can change them as well. <sighs> so, so with those, uh, as those called to envision a political uh, reality in which everyone is welcome, everyone is encouraged, everyone is celebrated just as they are, may we be those people who believe that that is true and engage in the hard work to make it true. May that be so.